is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's really important to capture kids when they're in high school, when they're interested in all of this, when they're learning about government to be able to vote. They think more of those individuals are going to vote Democrats. They think it helps them, just like they think allowing non-citizens would help them. They're at the forefront of social and legislative movements and have earned inclusion in our democracy. What is the problem? We had, we had the biggest election turnout since 1966 last year. If the idea here is to make it more likely we have a higher turnout, it seems to me that's happening. It is the latest push from the left, frustrated with the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court and what it means for their platform for the next few decades. If they can't catch up through the ballot box by winning an election, they want to try doing it in a different way. Now, we would have no interest in that whatsoever. It'll never happen. It won't happen. I guarantee it won't happen for six years. And now, Stacey Washington. program. It's me. I'm back. <laughs> and I'm here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And we have a wonderful program planned for you today. We're also we're, we're going to dive into a number of issues that you heard kind of coming in there uh, at the top of the show. This electoral college debate, um, it's really a non-starter. It's unconstitutional. And Democrats know they don't have the votes to get it through the traditional method that it would require, meaning, you know, to amend the Constitution to change it. So they want to do this voter compact. And we talked a little bit about it earlier this week. We'll delve into it a little bit more. We also have a wonderful first time on the program. Guests for today, we're going to be speaking with Congressman Barr. Now, I want to first just a programming note from yesterday. I was talking about Victor David Hansen joining the show. And he will, but not today. He's had a scheduling change that is preventing him from joining us, so he will not be on with us. He will join us another day. We're still working on what day that will be, and I'll update you on that as soon as I know. But Congressman Barr will join us, um, and he will talk with us about just, first of all, impeachment. Now, Congressman Barr has a really interesting history having to do with uh, impeachment. And uh, this, let's not... Let's not mince words here. We actually want to have uh, people on the program who can discuss impeachment with us from the perspective of where we are. We also want to kind of have, have moments, if you will, where we delve into the legalities of it. We often have our heritage guests come on and talk to us about the legal side. And so this interview today is going to be pretty interesting because we're talking about uh, you know someone who's had the experience of being on the impeachment team when it was President Clinton. And so that that's that perspective aids us in the discussion that we're having because even though I think it's highly unlikely that the Democrats actually impeach the president, I know they want to, but they don't have the support of their leadership and it's going to be very hard to do because the some of the people who actually want to be reelected those congressmen are going to have to look to Nancy Pelosi for her leadership because she will be integral in making sure that they get the fundraising and all of the ducks lined up with the party to make sure they can gain reelection. So those individuals will not want to do impeachment. Newly elected members who come from the Trump states, they ran on moderation. They did not run on impeaching the president. They also will have a difficult time selling that to Really, they'll have a difficult time selling it at all, uh, if, if you think about it. Um, so Congressman Bob Barr, 
was actually the impeachment manager for President William Jefferson Clinton. He's a former member of Congress from the 7th District of Georgia, and he's the president and CEO of the Law Enforcement Education Foundation, which we love. We, we love that group. Um, and he's a board member of the National Rifle Association and a founder of Liberty Strategies, LLC. So he'll be joining us and to talk about everything having to do with this push for impeachment, and I can't wait to, to get into that. We're also going to cover um, this pushed by the Democrats to change the very structure of how our country runs and operates, not by the constitutionally mandated means of, you know, getting two thirds of the states to agree to amend the Constitution, not through a constitutional convention, which I'm not in favor of. But obviously there are mechanisms provided by the founders for making these types of huge changes. And so I was reading this morning on a and a little group that I, I get like little email notifications from, and they were sharing that there's this that there's this phenomenon, right? That we we tend to think that because President Trump lost the uh, popular vote by three million votes, that there there are people running around the country. When I say we, just other Americans, some Americans believe that those three million voters were disenfranchised, and. That might seem to be the case, but remember, a quarter of the population of California are illegal aliens. 25% of the people who live in California are in the country illegally, and they allow those people to have driver's licenses and other things that you could, I mean, they, they use the same kinds of documents to get their kids into public school and to, you know, pay for hospital bills. And really, they're, they're operating within the country. California is as close as it gets. Um, besides sanctuary city policies in, in Chicago, Illinois, to full citizenship. The, and the, the idea that they're not voting, it's just like, you know, I, I have swamp land in Florida that I want to sell to you if you think that none of the illegal aliens are voting. They're acting like citizens in every other way. And so the, the conversation that was being had, which I just, I was just reading through everything, and it occurred to me, you know, that this, this is something that Americans aren't hearing. The fact is, if you take California out of the equation, and really, isn't it logical to say that you don't know how many of those 3 million votes are illegal aliens, but the, the majority of the 3 million votes that put Hillary Clinton over the top on the, the uh, popular vote, they're all from California, majority of them, like 99% of them. You take that away, and President Trump won handily the popular vote everywhere else. But there's more than that. We have 3,141 counties in the United States, okay? And Trump won 3,084 of them. So this idea that big cities were disenfranchised by the Electoral College doesn't flush out when you look at the other areas of the country. Clinton won 57 counties because, again, the same knife that cuts in one direction, we win the popular vote cuts in the other direction when you break it down by another metric. And the county metric shows that 57 counties that are heavily populated by Democrats, Democratic strongholds, those were won handily by Hillary Clinton. But everywhere else in the country, it was Donald Trump. Now, there are 62 counties in New York State because New York State is another, it's a liberal stronghold. People consider it to be completely liberal. But Trump won 46 of the 62 counties in New York State. So he won New York. If you're looking at the popular vote she won by, and, the, and I've seen different statistics that it was 3 million votes by 1.5 million votes. 
But in the five counties that encompass New York City, which is the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Richmond and Queens, Clinton received well over two million more votes than Trump. Clinton only won four of these counties. Trump won Richmond. Therefore, in these five counties alone, more than accounted for Clinton winning the popular vote for that half of the country. Right. If it was three million votes, then that's half of the popular vote right there in one state and in one geographical area. Those five counties actually comprise 319 miles, square miles, and the United States is comprised of 3,797,000 square miles. So it would be crazy to suggest that New York or California and their big states, their populous states, they are drivers of the American GDP. Their voters are just as important as voters anywhere else like New Hampshire or Missouri or uh, Arkansas or Mississippi, or any of the other states. But they're not important enough for us to abolish the electoral college system, which is integral to what we have here in this country. So we'll, and and it really, it goes to everything. The representative form of government prevents tyranny through mob rule. It's just so much that you, you learn it when you learn about the Constitution, you learn it when you take a good civics class. A lot of these younger millennials, obviously they didn't get those classes, so they're not, they're not able to argue against this idea that People who just have a lot of land, I saw this argument on Twitter this morning, people who have a lot of land in their state, but not a lot of people, are determining our elections instead of the actual people. We want one vote to count as one vote. Well, in order to make that happen, you need the Electoral College. Mob rule is their so-called democratic system where everyone gets one vote and the popular vote rules, which means just pack a bunch of states with illegal aliens, let a little voter fraud into it. And only the population centers matter. It's, it's just, I don't get it. I don't get why anybody would want to go with that. Um, so we're going to get to the story about a journalist accusing Twitter of testing a more extreme version of the shadow ban technique on his account. But first, I want to just touch on really quickly, we, d- we discussed it yesterday about the horrible slayings in the mosques in New Zealand. And you have this former White House Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert, saying that he believes that the way that that horrible massacre was live streamed and it wasn't stopped during the live stream, even though people were reporting it, not enough people reported it fast enough for Facebook to catch it in the minutes that it was live streamed. And so it had to be taken down afterwards after, you know, untold numbers of people had already seen it live. He says we need a delay in the live streaming on social media. Uh, It's number two. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. And I think uh, the difference between content, which is hard to monitor and police, and video traffic might need to be explored a little here. And I've thought about this quite a bit, George. I think it might be time to think about delaying or forcing those providers to delay live broadcasting or live streaming. There's a lot of benefits that can come from individuals broadcasting from their telephones. There's no negative or downside to forcing some delay into that broadcast. It'll require some time and money, but I think it's something that we should consider. So I'm, I'm a person who I, you know, we live stream a lot. We're live streaming right now. I also live stream sometimes when there's a huge issue or some kind of news story, I'll do a live stream. Sometimes I do it when, when I have some, you know, good news to share, whatever. And that's no different than multiple millions of people all over the place who are live streaming for personal reasons, for, uh, you know, whatever the content. And if they built in a mechanism by which you, if you're going to live stream, you have to start at, Let's say, you know, if you're going to live stream at two, you have to start at 10 till. And during that 10 minutes, they're going to kind of 
go over your account and see what you've live streamed before, that would possibly catch some of this because people who want to do massacres would not take the time. Or maybe they would. I mean, these these psychopaths are pretty pretty crafty to set up a live stream and then wait the required amount of time, whether it's two minutes or 10 before beginning the live stream and then starting to kill people. And you have to wonder, you know, would, would killers do that? It would be effective in one sense, but in another sense, it's not effective because if someone is a killer, they're not likely to have killed before and live streamed it on Facebook. If they're planning on doing it for the first time, they're probably not going to have any issues with their account it would also involve, it, it sounds like to me, just logically speaking, that they would say only certain accounts can live stream immediately. Anyone who's never had a live stream or doesn't have a record of live streaming certain content, that they can kind of say, okay, this person reliably live streams it every day at two o'clock, then you know, you kind of have to earn your way up to being able to live stream live, which opens them up for all kinds of attacks and criticisms on how they're judging who can live stream and who can't. It also could be used as another mechanism of suppression of, of different kinds of ideas. And I don't know, with Facebook, I kind of go back and forth because they do tend to tamp down the distribution of my live stream content. And I know they're doing it because I can look at the numbers from every, all, I have all the data right there inside, inside Facebook. You can just go in and see how they allow my live stream to go out and then they don't. And people have messaged me and said they sent a survey to me after your live stream popped up in my feed, I got a survey saying, does this offend you? And, you know, so that they're, they're intentionally looking for people who are offended by what I'm putting out and then, uh, you know, reducing the distribution. So it's another way if we, if we go in that direction, it's another way that they would suppress conservative content in my opinion. But that is really a small concern when it's put up next to this idea that right now, the way they have it set up, it encourages these monsters to, you know, do these things. And what we don't really pay attention to because it's not really, uh, you know, reported in the news a lot is that the content moderators for Facebook, we talked about it a little bit on the show, I think it was a couple of weeks ago before CPAC. Uh, we talked about the story out there about the content moderators and how they all have PTSD and they quit after, you know, they, they can't, they can't stand it. They see such vile content. Um, so it's interesting, and I don't know what they're going to do to solve the problem, but clearly it's not going to be an easy fix. All right, we're going to do the encouragement in segment three. When we get back from the break, we will have former Congressman Bob Barr with us. Stay right there. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, we took the spices that we'd prepared and we went into the tomb. We found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When we went in, we didn't find the body of our Lord Jesus. Who took him? Where is he? Who took him? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Where's Jesus? He's not here. He has risen. Jesus, let's alive. He's alive. Jesus was betrayed, abandoned, mocked, beaten, and then crucified on a cross for sinners like you and me. The Son of God was buried, and after three days, He rose from that grave. 
American Family Radio encourages you to rejoice in the glorious reality that our God is a living God. Hi, I'm Crawford Loretz with The Legacy Moment. One day I took one of our grandsons to see an animated children's movie. He was two years old at the time. I, I thought that because he was a toddler, he'd get in for free. I was thinking, he's a little guy. He'll sit on my lap. Why should I have to pay for him? But the lady said to me, sir, not a chance. His ticket costs as much as mine cost. That incident reminds me that a relationship with Christ is non-transferable. Nobody can sit on laps and make it into heaven, can they? In Judges chapter 3, there are three incredible mandates for every succeeding generation. Verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. Verse 4, And they were for testing Israel to find out that they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Now verse 7, And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So application number one, every generation needs to be taught to fight. We cannot fight the righteous spiritual battles for them. And remember, our enemies are not human. Secondly, every generation must be taught to obey God for themselves. We can't obey God for our children. Then thirdly, every generation must be taught to be holy. Our sanctification does not cover them. Our relationship with God does not cover them. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. A relationship with Christ is non-transferable. Let's not make assumptions about our children. Let's encourage them to passionately pursue the Savior for themselves. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. You can find out more at AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. And hit the subscribe button on Facebook where you can find all of our pages, American Family Association, American Family Radio, Stacy on the Right Show, Urban Family Talk. All of those you can check out and hit the like button. Uh, right now, it's my pleasure to welcome former Congressman Bob Barr. He's, he was the impeachment manager for President William Jefferson Clinton, former member of Congress, 7th District of Georgia, president and CEO of the Law Enforcement Education Foundation, and board member of the NRA, of which I'm a member, uh, founder of Liberty Strategies, LLC. Congressman Barr, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be with you, Stacey. So I'm, I'm, I'm dying to hear what you have to say because there's so much chatter about impeachment. Uh, the impeachment, it'll never happen. Impeachment, it could happen. Even Nancy Pelosi has now come out and gone on the record, which I found kind of sh- shocking, saying that, you know, she's not in favor of impeachment. It divides the country and she's for unity, which to me is her signaling to Democrats that this is a fool's errand and will cost them 2020. What do you see happening? I'm sorry, Stacey, I didn't catch the very end of what you said. What, what do you see happening here with impeachment and the president? The, the problem, one of the main problems, Stacey, is that very few people, even including uh, members of Congress, really understand what impeachment is. That is what it was intended to be, how it is set forth in our Constitution, uh, and what, how it should be dealt with. 
uh, impeachment does not have and should not have anything whatsoever to do with the behavior of a president or other high official in the government over policy disagreements, over an interpretation of a particular statute, many of which, of course, uh, are subject to differing interpretations, uh, nor should impeachment uh, have anything to do with actions undertaken allegedly by a president before assuming office. Impeachment is the sole method within our constitutional framework for punishing a president for actions that are high crimes and misdemeanors while in office, not before he was in office and not afterwards, obviously. So what is it that the Democrats, I I know they're setting up um, for impeachment proceedings, and they've sent out these 81 or 89 subpoenas, which it's funny, they've only gotten eight back. The deadline has passed. Um, what, what, what are they setting up? Because it, it's almost as if they don't understand what you just explained, that it's not for actions taken before. It's things he did while he was the president. That's a, that's a very good question. And it's difficult to, to tell, Stacey, whether it is because they don't understand what impeachment is or they do and they want to go after Trump anyway. Uh, if you look at some of the areas uh, that they already, the Democrats, that is, in the House, already have identified as subjects uh, for investigations, many of them have nothing to do with what President Trump has done or even allegedly has done while in office. They have to do, for example, with business dealings that preceded his uh, swearing in on January 20th of, of uh, twenty. Uh, 17. Uh, they have to do with his relationship, uh, alleged relationship with uh, his former outside lawyer, uh, Michael Cohen, the allegations of payoffs. All of that has nothing to do or should have nothing to do with whether or not there ought to be an impeachment inquiry. Now, the, the gray area in that context, of course, could be uh, were there actions undertaken by the president uh, in furtherance of alleged criminal acts, say, uh, say campaign uh, finance uh, uh, violations, before he assumed office, but in which he engaged as a cover-up or a conspiracy while in office. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a gray area there. But by and large, what it appears to me to be uh, under, under, undertaking here or unfolding here uh, is simply an effort by the Democratic leadership in the House, uh, particularly the Judiciary Committee and the Government uh, Oversight Committee, also some of the other committees, but those two primarily, to simply investigate Trump because they don't like Trump and they wish he had not been elected. <laughs> so a reversal of the election, which... I, I find it kind of comical that this is the action they're taking and, and prolonged sustained resistance to just allowing him to govern for, you know, his the term he's been elected for, which is four years after they were the ones that made a huge deal about President Trump saying he'd have to wait and see what happened uh, during the election as to whether or not he would accept it, which coincidentally, there would have been nothing, pres- or, you know, then candidate Trump would have been able to do had Hillary Clinton won the number of electoral college votes. He would have still been a private citizen and the media wouldn't have helped him. 
Congress wouldn't have helped him. The DOJ, no one would have helped a regular guy, a businessman who lost the election, try to resist Hillary Clinton being sworn in and governing this country. But the, they're doing the exact same thing for Hillary Clinton uh, at, through this impeachment proceeding, the, the, drumming this up. I suppose yeah, one has to have at least a, a certain cynical sense of humor when you when you look at this. Uh, there is no consistency uh, in what the Democrats appear to be doing. Uh, and their efforts, for example, I've uh, been criticized uh, you know, in my efforts to defend uh, President Trump uh, against impeachment, because to me, at this point, there is no evidence of impeachable offenses. Uh, people say, Democrats say, well, Barr, you, were, uh, you, you led the impeachment of uh, President Clinton. Well, that's true, but in the case of the impeachment of President Clinton back in 1998, uh, that impeachment, those articles of impeachment, followed a very specific, very careful, and very exhaustive uh, investigation by the House Judiciary Committee, based largely on the report submitted to the Congress uh, by then Independent Counsel uh, Judge Ken Starr, uh, that established actual violations of federal laws by President Clinton while he was in office. It had nothing whatever to do with allegations that he had done something while not in office. Uh, so the, the two are very different. That is, the current investigations of President Trump by the Democrats seeking to simply, they're basically doing what uh, uh, Robert Mueller is doing. They're, they're looking for uh, a crime. They're looking for an impeachable offense. In the case of President Clinton, the evidence was clearly established that he had committed criminal offenses while in office, and that's why that impeachment moved forward. So there's, there's also been some conversation on the right among like many different corners saying that now that we have the, this behind us, you know, and it's been decades since then, and we saw the kind of backlash from the American people against the Republicans for impeaching Bill Clinton, that they shouldn't have done it. Do you do you agree with that? I know it's easy to kind of quarterback from an armchair 20 years later, but do you agree with that, or do you think that's misguided? The, the impeachment of President Clinton was entirely appropriate in 1998 when the House voted two articles of impeachment against him. And it is entirely appropriate and responsible to Congress. The House of Representatives did that even today. Uh, as we set forth, for example, in, in pre-impeachment uh, hearings in the House uh, Judiciary Committee back in 1998, uh, there were numerous instances in which federal employees and federal officials had been prosecuted criminally for precisely the type of obstruction of justice and perjury uh, in which President Clinton had engaged. Uh, and folks that, uh, that, that claimed that uh, we were going after Bill Clinton uh, for his personal misdeeds uh, are entirely off the mark. He was impeached because, as president and while president, he violated important federal laws relating to the integrity of our judicial process, that is, obstructing justice and perjured testimony, the underpinning of the basic fairness in our judicial system. So 
Uh, I, I rest very comfortably at night uh, 20, uh, 20 years later, uh, having been a part of the impeachment and Senate trial of uh, President Clinton. You know, and I just think it's interesting because it's it's almost become popular to say, like people say it on television and, you know, everyone on the panel kind of nods like, yeah, that was a total mistake. But there were, I, I remember it because at the time I was kind of on the fence a little bit, still mainly a Democrat, but I was really shocked by what President Clinton had done. And I thought to myself, you know, would I, would I hate this if it was a Republican who'd done this? And I kind of felt like I would have. And I was embarrassed, not just for the country, but specifically for Hillary Clinton, who at the time I had a much more favorable outlook towards her. And I felt like the, the impeachment really toned him down, like he stopped philandering, you know, for, for that time frame. And it kept him much more in the line of, of like he, he stopped lawbreaking, if you will. It seemed like it tamped him down and, and settled him to a point where he could go on. It was divisive. But it seemed appropriate to me then. And now here we are and people are saying we shouldn't shouldn't have done it. And then they come behind that with this idea that neither should the Democrats do it to President Trump. But I don't see any similarities there. I don't see President Trump as having done the same things while he was in office anywhere close to any of that to what we saw from uh, Bill Clinton when he was president. I, I agree with you. And again, it goes back to the purpose of a prosecutor and the responsibility of a prosecutor and the responsibility of the House of Representatives. Uh, as you know, uh, an, a, an impeachment is similar to an indictment. It charges an offense. It doesn't prove the offense. It charges the offense, uh, which is basically what an indictment does. And the problem here is, uh, with regard to uh, Robert Mueller uh, and his uh, investigation, and the investigations that seem to be moving forward now toward a potential impeachment in the House is both of these uh, activities, both tracks, are a prosecutor in search of a crime. And that is not what our judicial system is supposed to be, whether one looks at impeachment, which is the way our Constitution provides to punish a high public official, federal official, including the president, while in office, and the way a federal prosecutor, and I served under Presidents Reagan and Bush one as the U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Georgia, my job then and my job as a member of the House in 1998 was not to go out and find an impeachable offense or to find an indictable offense. It was to carefully, methodically review evidence brought to my attention by investigators as the U.S. attorney by the FBI, for example, uh, and in the uh, impeachment of President Clinton, material brought to us after extensive investigation by Ken Starr. And based on that body of evidence, uh, as a U.S. attorney, I moved forward with cases and as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, moved forward with the impeachment based on substantial incredible uh, body of evidence. So how do we, I guess there is no way because the Democrats control Congress. And so they're going to, factions of them are going to continue on with this impeachment. And also 
the investigations, like there, there are these, and I, I don't know if, if your expertise covers this, but there are these huge movements in some heavily liberal dominated states to say that President Trump's name can't appear on the ballot unless he provides five years worth of his uh, you know, tax returns from whatever year. I, I don't even know what the parameters are, but they're saying they're going to keep President Trump off the ballot in 2020 if he doesn't provide these things. Is that lawful? Can, can they do that? Here again, another very, very important and fundamental question. Uh, is, is it lawful? Is it appropriate? Those are two very different things, similar, for example, to the current debate over whether uh, President Trump uh, appropriately declared a national emergency mm-hmm. uh, with regard to our southern border uh, in order to shift funds from certain projects uh, to uh, building the wall. Uh, was it lawful? Uh, is it lawful what the president did? I believe that it is. The law does provide authority for a president to declare an emergency and then shift funds from one project to another, for for example. Uh, is it good policy? I don't think so. Mm. Uh, with regard to uh, President Trump, uh, I have no problem or would have no problem with the House through either the Government uh, Oversight Committee or the House Judiciary Committee, if there is, in fact, credible, legitimate evidence brought to the attention of those committees uh, that the president has engaged in wrongful acts that rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor while in office, then the House ought to pursue that. Uh, that is a responsibility of the House, the same as it was a responsibility of the House when I was in the House back in 1998 uh, with the impeachment of President uh, Clinton. But I don't see at this point uh, that threshold having been met. Now, it, it may be uh, in the Mueller report. We don't know. Uh, but by you know, the hints and sort of reading in between the lines, Uh, I'm not sure it's there. Of course, we don't know yet. We haven't seen what what may come out uh, through the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, which may be entirely separate and apart from the report that uh, that Mr. Mueller provides to the Attorney General, uh, probably in in very short order. Mm. Okay, well... I, I thought I would, and I did. Thank you. I learned a lot. I feel like <laughs> more equipped to discuss this if someone brings it up to me at the Walgreens or the grocery store. Former <laughs> Congressman Bob Barr, thank you. Thank you for your expertise and for joining us today. Anytime, Stacy. Thank you. All right. All right. Talk to you again soon. We'll be back with more. Uh, Stacy on the right. Stay right there. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. Prayer is vitally important in a marriage. After I was named head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Lauren and I felt pulled in a thousand different directions. Prayer really helped us during that transition. We prayed on the phone together during the day, and the kids and Lauren would pray together in the evenings as a family on the nights I came home late from practice. Tony and I have prayed together since the beginning of our marriage. It hasn't always been consistent, 
but it's a priority that we cherish. So don't let a hectic schedule or other excuses get in the way of going to God in prayer. It's the key to success for any marriage. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Equipped with Chris Brooks. This program is an apologetic endeavor. What I want to do is really train you in the art and science of defending and commending your Christian faith to people who maybe they've been hurt by the church, maybe they don't believe like you believe, and you're saying to yourself, how do I have an effective conversation with them? Well, we're looking for an evangelistic edge, if you will, that will allow us to more effectively, more contextualize the gospel so that we can reach men and women for Christ. Quite often, the on-ramp, if you will, is looking at culture and taking advantage of the conversations that folks are already having and saying, how can I leverage this to get people to talk about Jesus? This show becomes kind of massively significant to you if your desire is to reach people for Christ. Get equipped with Chris Brooks. Join me Monday through Friday at noon Central Time on Urban Family Talk. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. When President Trump took office, one out of three voters didn't think he would finish his term. Today, over two years in, one out of four still feels he won't make it. And even while President Trump is gearing up for the election, 14% don't think he'll run again. Many more, 53%, hope he won't. Of course, most 2016 Trump voters want to keep him as the Republican nominee, 77%. However, nearly a quarter of those who voted for him last time aren't ready to sign on for another four years. It's not surprising then. The poll also shows many view the president as vulnerable in 2020. 55% rate the Democrats' chances of beating President Trump as excellent or good. That includes three in 10 Republicans who think, odds are, a Democrat will win. Do these numbers add up to bad news for the president? Don't bet on it. They're almost the same percentages who expected Hillary Clinton would defeat Donald Trump in 2016. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your Potpourri. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. So this, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? We want to talk about the scandals um, that happened during the Obama administration, and we want to do so with experts. We want to make sure that we're covering everything from the perspective of data and information and what, what actually happened. So this is a great opportunity for us. We have Kenny Stein, Director of Policy at IER. Kenny, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this. Ten years ago on Wednesday, solar energy startup Solyndra was guaranteed a $535 million loan by the Obama administration and went bankrupt two years later. And I only heard crickets about it in the media. The only reason I knew it happened was because... Breitbart and other news outlets on the right were reporting on it. And then, of course, Michelle Malkin wrote a book and covered it in there. And I, I mean, I know about it, but most Americans just think, oh, green energy is something we don't do enough of. Right, exactly. And what the, what 
made it so egregious that the bankruptcy was kind of ignored was that that Berlinger had been uh, the you know the face of the Obama administration's clean energy financing. The uh, uh, President Obama went to Solyndra and gave a big speech there and talked about how Solyndra is the future and you know this is our green future and you know every every this is the future of our economy is companies like Solyndra. And then less than a year later, it went bankrupt. And yeah, a lot of people chose not to talk about it because they didn't want to make the Obama administration look bad. Hmm. So. Is is there something more important than not making them look bad? And I'm be, I'm being facetious with you, Kenny, but I mean, it just seems like we can trace not wanting the Obama administration or President Obama to look bad back to tons of news and information simply not being reported and not discussed, and billions of taxpayer dollars going down the drain because we don't want to embarrass this one guy. Right, that's that's true, and you're you're right. It's it's beyond just the Obama administration. It's the larger ideology. This this obsessive focus on uh, wind power and solar power as somehow being the future, and that's, that's you're on the right side of history if you believe in wind and solar power. So there's this underlying ideology that every time one of these companies fails or has economic problems or you have, like, Tesla has given up on installing solar panels because they can't make money off of it, you know, every time one of these things happens, people don't like to report on it because that would undermine their long-term, you know, bending the arc of history towards just using wind and solar to generate electricity. Okay, so Kenny, let's let's just have a chat. It's just you and I. We can just we can we can tell the truth. We can not not hold on to the fact that we're we're on the right. If if solar power and wind power generated enough energy to be viable sources to replace carbon-based fuels, would you support them? You know, if if there was a means for uh, supplying it at uh, an affordable cost, uh, yeah, sure. And frankly, there there's some parts of this country where wind or solar, you know, actually makes sense for generation. Like Southern California, the perfect example. It's very very sunny. It gets hot during the day because of all that sun. So solar power is actually a, a useful part of the energy grid to provide electricity there. The problem is, is that what these the, the real advocates of wind and solar support is not just having wind and solar be part of the mix, you know, where it makes sense, where it's cheap. What they want is 100% renewables. They want to change right. over all of our electricity production to wind and solar. And just as a pure matter, matter of land and physics, that's just not possible. We don't have enough space, and we don't have enough. Wind and solar are so diffused to take the huge amount of land to generate electricity. And when you start talking about replacing our entire electricity supply with wind and solar, it's just it's just not feasible. That's, it's not. And that's really where I depart. Yeah, me too. So I, when I first heard about solar panels 20-some-odd years ago, I told my husband, I said, if that's the future, I'm all about it. Like, wouldn't it be cool to have a house with solar panels yeah. on it? Yeah. And my husband said, yeah, I mean, if, if it's cheaper... And it's better for the environment. Now, now, admittedly, back then we were in our we were in the no man's land of just beginning to earn some money, just beginning to see a real tax burden appear, moving to the Midwest, kind of th- figuring out politically that we weren't really as leftist as we thought we were. But on that issue, we didn't really see it as a political issue. It was more like if it's good for the environment and it's an alternative to fossil fuels that burns cleaner, you know, or doesn't burn at all, you 
we like I was waiting for the wind farms to pop up all over the country and for there, you know, I, it didn't occur to me that there'd be bird strikes and that endangered birds would be killed by the, you know, thousands by these things. And none of that stuff occurred to me. I was all for it. And I remained positive about it until I realized that it was really just a wealth transfer scheme. People who know it's not viable for the entire country, yet they still went out and got these huge, um, it was like a part of the infrastructure package. They submitted these proposals and they knew they couldn't get the job done. They burned through taxpayer dollars and now they're gone off in the wind. They're never going to be prosecuted for that theft. And we're left holding the bag, trying to explain to a bunch of angry toddlers that we would support wind if it would work. It just won't work. Right, that's the thing, and it's again, it's a, this is an underlying ideological thing. You know, when you talk about solar energy, like I said, South, Southern California, Arizona, yeah, it might make sense, but there is in no world does do solar panels make sense in Massachusetts during the winter or in or in Minnesota during the winter. It just it just it's very obvious that that can't be our only source of electricity generation. You have to have something else. And, you know, right now that's coal and natural gas mainly with a little bit of nuclear. But, of course, the, the wind and solar folks don't like nuclear either. So mm. their uh, myopic focus is just on wind and solar. And once, once you recognize that, that this is an ideological obsession, suddenly, suddenly a lot of their arguments become extremely hollow. You know, <laughs> what's funny to me is that... So Americans are really kind of just like, they're super reasonable. You know what I mean? Like, so take away the 10% of people who are against everything and the 10% of people who are really just ninnies who go for anything. And that 80% that's left are very reasonable. And so if you can say, look, we'll transition you to solar and wind power, and this is how much money you'll save a month, and this is how much you'll spend, and this is when you'll recoup the cost back, and here are the cities that have already done it that are near you in your same geographical area, so same weather. And so we know this will work. It's proven. Americans are really reasonable about that, but they're really yeah. unreasonable when you say, we want you to do solar and wind power. We know it won't work for you because you live in Missouri and you don't have enough sunny days a year, but we don't care because we care about the environment more than you and your desire to have, you know, AC and heating. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And, and you talk about the affordability side of it. And yeah, that, that you can persuade people you know, depending on their circumstances, that it makes sense to them financially. But the other question, huge question mark, is reliability. Like, you, electricity needs to be always on. You need to be able to flip your light switch, and it works. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that wind and solar are intermittent, but there's no, there's no guarantee you're going to have that electricity supply at the time. So, again, you need some sort of backup. And if you're putting all this wind and solar on the grid, somebody has to pay to maintain that coal plant or gas plant it's sometimes it's just sitting there not earning money. Mm-hmm. But but everybody on the grid has to pay to maintain that backup capacity in addition to paying for what their wind and solar installations, you know. So it's just it's it's layering on costs, raising electricity bills, and you know, maybe at some marginal benefit for reducing carbon dioxide emissions, but it's the the whole thing just it doesn't all add up. That's the key. You know, I just I get a little upset about it, Kenny, because of, of, you know, kind of what I just shared about everybody being really reasonable and totally being forward if it would work. But the, the downside to what you've just explained is that if, if we're forced to do wind and solar, the costs are borne by everyone, obviously, but the costs hurt the most at the middle income 
and below levels because if you're in, you know, if you're in a middle income situation or you're at the median 56, 57,000 a year for a family of four, you can't afford a spike in your electricity bill of 20% to accommodate the, you know, Green New Deal forcing wind power into your area. And for people who are living below that, where they're really, they have a set budget and they have a set, each amount is set per month, they have a set income and they can't deviate from that. This is something that can destroy their entire budget and make it so that they can't keep their electric on or their, you know, their, their, uh, their gas or whatever utilities they have. They have to start juggling and paying this one and paying that one. And when your stuff's shut off, then you have to pay fees to get it cut back on. And people who are living, you know, where they have a set income, this is the worst for them. Yet the Democrats claim that's their constituency base. They're the people they're protecting. Right. It's a huge deal because, as you said, the, the, People at the lower end of the income scale, they spend a much higher percentage of their income on gas and on utilities. And so even even a tiny increase, like the, you hear a lot from the green folks that, oh, this might increase electricity rates a little bit, but that will encourage people to use less. Well, that little bit of increase hits people at the bottom like a, like a jackhammer. I mean, mm-hmm. it's crazy. And the, I'll use California as another good example of that. You know, folks along the coast of California that have this beautiful temperate weather and it's never too hot and it's never too cold. So okay, I'm not they, sure. They, if they we might lost turn on their him? air conditioning two oh, or three times a year. They don't notice those higher electricity prices. It's the people in the Central Valley of California where it gets blazing hot all summer and they have to run air conditioning 24 7. They're also the poorer people, too, because the rich folks live on the coast with the nice weather. So it's like a double whammy. And that, that can be compounded throughout the United States. People who live in on the coast don't necessarily need as much energy consumption as a lot of folks who live in the central part of the United States. Mm. And you know, so I just I want to share something anecdotally, and and Kenny, I think you'll kind of see where I'm going with this. And I grew up in uh, you know so-called military housing in Germany, and so when they noticed energy spikes where people were using a lot of energy and it, and sometimes it would be concentrated to, you know, this neighborhood or these three buildings or what have you. We had these German style apartments that we lived in. What they would do is they would start a public information campaign. And since we only had armed forces radio and armed for- forces network television, you know, you're going to catch these commercials because you're going to watch your show and it's going to be on and you're going to see it. And the commercials had these jazzy little, uh, little, you know, they were jingles don't shop when you're hungry. No, no, no. Don't shop. I still remember them to this day. This was so many years ago. I won't say how many. So, Kenny, they had one about electricity, which was when you leave a room, shut the light out. When you're brushing your teeth, shut the water off. This money that's saved can be used to keep our facilities nice, to improve you know, the, the neighborhood, to add on things. And they would encourage that. And I remember distinctly, like I would leave my room and leave the lamp on, you know, because when I walk back in my room, I want the lamp to already be on. And my mom would say, what have they told us? Cut that out. So she would make you go back in your bedroom and cut the, cut the lamp out. And we would do the same thing at night. We, there weren't as many lights to cut out because if you weren't in the kitchen, the light in the kitchen was off. If you weren't in the dining room, the light was off. And we lived that way. And it kind of persists to this day. Like I cut lights out unless it's about to get dark and I need some lights on in the house. I, I, I cut lights out. It still persists. Public information campaigns are much more effective than charging people more for their energy and expecting them to use less when you can't help how much energy you need to run your furnace or your air conditioner, you have to run those things because if you don't, in some parts of the country, you die from heat exposure. So, you know, I, I just don't understand why they don't do that instead. 
Well, and you, you make a perfect, perfect point. Just We just saw a couple weeks ago during the big polar vortex up in Michigan and Wisconsin, they were having shortages of natural gas, and they were, they were asking people to lower their thermostats down into the 60s in the middle of this massive mm-hmm. temperature drop. And it's like once those temperatures start getting that low, people, people will die. Like you can't turn it down any further. So, yes, that's the, this assumption that somehow you can, you can manage the demand. Sometimes you're gonna, you, you have to have power. Like there's just no way around it. You have to have it. And Americans expect it. And, and yeah. I don't think they shouldn't. We are not the hermit kingdom of North Korea. We should be able right. to provide continuous electrical and, you know, uh, you know gas or whatever you're, you're using for your heat. We should be able to provide that. And anything that prevents that, Americans are not going to be for it, which I think is why we see these uh, kind of green energy companies. They go to the government to try to get the government to force it on certain areas and it always fails. And so I'm, I'm really glad for the work that you're doing um, in reporting on this. And, and thank you so much for joining the show today. Kind of last minute, but we, we got you in. It was great to talk to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. Kenny Stein, Director of Policy at IER. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. All right. Talk again soon. So we had a little bit of, as I mentioned before earlier in the program, we had Victor Davis Hansen, which I was so excited to speak to him. And I still am. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to get him on um, soon. I'm not sure when. Still working that out. Um, Demetrius, associate producer, is working that out. So hopefully we'll get that settled and I will update you on it. Um, And so now we're getting close to the end of the first hour. And I want to make sure and give you, um, I had pulled this scripture out today. If two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And that's Matthew 18, 19. And so we discount this. And there's nothing wrong with praying by ourselves. In fact, we're called to pray and speak to our Heavenly Father and to develop that relationship. We have to do it. Don't stop doing that. And that's a continual conversation throughout the day that we continue to talk to Him. And I notice the difference when I don't. So it's a good habit. It's, the, it's one of the best habits. But there's power and joining together with someone else and confessing what you're going through. And then the two of you praying together and seeking God's face. Don't forget that. That's Matthew 18, 19. If you're leaving us now, God bless you from the heartland. If you're sticking around, onenewsnow.com, news and information up next.